Today, meandering in a minefield of rights and powers, and still trying to get somewhere. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So because I've been involved in higher education for the last 23, 24 years uh, in different settings, but for the last 20 years at Criswell College, uh, I received the Chronicle of Higher Education and read through it. It's, you know, it's just the regular industry paper, you know, the, the, every, every industry has this kind of thing. Well-respected, uh, very uh, informed, obviously, it's Chronicle of Higher Education, so you know it's going to be well-written. So I always, I always gain a lot uh, from reading it, and there, uh, there are a variety of perspectives presented, despite the accusations you hear against higher education and how liberal and progressive it inherently is and all that kind of stuff. The reality is they work pretty hard at presenting a variety of viewpoints about Uh, the issues that they discuss in this journal or in this paper. So, like a lot of news sources now, or industry papers maybe as well, uh, the Chronicle also has a daily briefing. So, a uh, shorter email that you receive every day, and often it points to the longer articles that are in the Chronicle itself and so on. Uh, but it's nice to get these little refreshers on a, on a regular basis and read them and see what's going on uh, in the educational world right now. But not only because it's interesting to me because I need to know what's happening in the educational world because I'm the president of a college, but also because um, it reflects a lot of the conflicts that are going on in broader society and a lot of the issues that arise in broader society and reveals how those are present Even when you've tried to work through, because in higher ed, you know, you're working at the highest levels intellectually of dealing with all of these different things, and yet you end up with a lot of the same questions and a lot of the same struggles that exist everywhere else in society because, surprise of surprises, people are just people. Uh, It's how it always is. And so I was reading the Chronicle of Higher Ed the other day, the, the daily briefing the other day, this particular one. Uh, this note had been written by Evan Goldstein, who is the managing editor uh, of the Chronicle. And so uh, in, in this briefing, I, I, I'll just read to you the opening couple of paragraphs to sort of introduce the topic. But it introduced a conflict, a, a moral conflict, a rights conflict between different groups in society. And it's in something that's been coming up in higher ed over and over again and that you've heard about, even in terms of the last couple of decades, free speech zones and things like that. So here's here's what happened just recently because of what's been going on in the Middle East. So you can hear how this is a convergence of a lot of different issues that are going on right now. And in the middle, by the Middle East, I mean 
since uh, the attack of Hamas on Israel and then the response of Israel to Hamas and within the Palestinian territories, specifically around Gaza. So here's how that briefing opened. Two days after Hamas brutally attacked, I'm quoting now, Israel, killing more than 1,000 people and kidnapping more than 200, Lawrence H. Summers took to X, uh, which is Twitter, right, took to X to vent his displeasure at the university he once led. Here's the quotation. Now, uh, this is about Harvard, and he used to lead Harvard, obviously. In nearly 50 years of Harvard affiliation, he wrote, I have never been as disillusioned and alienated as I am today. At issue, and this is outside of the quotation marks inside this paragraph where I'm still quoting, at issue was the failure of Harvard administrators to publicly condemn the worst slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, even though campus leaders previously spoke out on such matters as police violence against black Americans and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Indeed, the Ukrainian flag was flown over Harvard Yard. Now, I'm, I'm still just quoting the paragraph. Summers smelled a double standard, and he wasn't alone. Student groups rushed to fill the void. In a now notorious joint statement released on the evening of October 7th, some 30 student organizations declared the Israeli regime, this is a quotation from those students, there was those organizations, the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. The backlash to that was swift, prompting weeks of intense debate about whether higher education has an anti-Semitism problem. The controversy shows no sign of abating. Proxy battles are waged via open letters, campus protests, counter-protests, donor revolts, doxing trucks, even death threats. Several articles in the issue of the Chronicle are meant to examine what's happening, blah, 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 and then it points to some of the articles in the Chronicle that deal with these things. Now, the issue here that emerges is, you know, in some people's minds, it's like, well, this is higher education. Why should we speak to these things at all? Well, it's, it's very similar to what we would say just as believers. Why wouldn't we speak to the things that are most important going on in our culture? Is there some part of our lives that our Christianity is not supposed to affect? And in the same way, our education ought to equip us to think better about the world and how we live in it and how we interact in it. And, and why wouldn't we speak to those things? But then when you start trying to figure out how you're going to speak to those things, if you, if you, if you do speak up, then you're taking a side. And if you don't speak up, then it's as if you're taking a side and you're assumed to be taking a side. So then you speak up, but then all the people who are on the other side of the issue are saying, why are you only advocating for them? And sometimes the groups that you're talking about really are vulnerable groups. And in this case, in America, you have two different vulnerable groups, and we'll talk about vulnerable, group, vulnerable groups throughout the conversation, despite the awkwardness of saying those words, vulnerable groups. Uh, the point is, we'll talk about those groups and who they are and what they mean as we go through the, through the discussion today, and probably next time, because this is almost surely a two-part discussion. But the point is, it puts a couple of different groups in contrast with each other and basically in contest 
with each other about who gets to have advocacy on these campuses, who's allowed to speak their part. And then when you say they're allowed to speak their part, who is advocated for from administrations? So you you do have on one side, I mean, this Hamas attack is an unqualified act of terrorism. There's, There's no other way to characterize it. That is the point of the action. We know that it's evil. All you have to do is look at the specific acts of violence that were perpetrated and know that there is a wickedness involved in Hamas's attack that ought to be uh, berated. And it's, it and it is in consensus to this point. And this is months after the attack in October. Now, a couple of months after, it, it is by consensus the worst attack on Jews as Jews since the Holocaust. So this is a, you know, it's a, a horrendous act. And you would think people could stand up and say, this is horrible. This terrorist act is terrible, and Hamas ought to be condemned for doing it. Should be an easy action. If you're going to say Russia shouldn't have attacked Ukraine, and you ought to say that, it's a no-brainer, then you ought to be able to say Hamas shouldn't have attacked Israel. And there is a vulnerable population involved. Anti-Semitism has been a problem for the last half a millennium, and more than that, we know, with different forms of pogroms and such throughout history, all the way all the way back before Esther, all the way back to Egypt. Fine. The point is they've always been happening. Anti-Semitism has always been a problem, but it's particular modern form, a problem for the last half millennium, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. In at the same time, Arabs in America are not exactly on solid footing when it comes to their own personal security. And so you can understand that on campuses, including on campuses, where people who are and, and and listen, if you think I'm if you think I'm exaggerating when I say that Arabs in America face, and not just Arabs, not just Arab speaking people, when I say Arabs, I mean Arab speaking people, not just Arab speaking people in general, but just Muslims, not just Middle Eastern Muslims, but Asian Muslims as well. And I know that's part of Asia in some ways, whatever. You know what I mean? Eastern Asian Muslims face the same kind of thing. Pacific Muslims face the same kinds of things. In my own mother's neighborhood, there is a family that faces persecution from the people around their area, leaving signs on their door and vandalism and things, telling them to go home and that they're not welcome here and so on. And so, it, I mean, it just, it's part of the existence of uh, Arab-speaking people and Muslims in our culture that they're not in, uh, on a secure footing. I'll repeat myself by saying it that way. And so you can understand why they would want to rise up and say, well, look, we need to be respected in this process too. Don't just make all Arabs the enemy uh, by defending Israel currently and ignoring the plight of people who live in Gaza. So I can understand why people are saying both things, and you can understand why this emerges. And on a college campus, and again, I've been working on college campuses, you know, as a professor and now as an administrator and now as a president— you know, for 24, 20, 24 years. And in all, you know, in all of that time, one of the things I've learned is that students are great at caring about things. They are great at giving their hearts and souls 
to something so they can be involved and grow and learn and apply their energy and all of that kind of stuff. And it's fantastic. But also that a lot of students, and that's not true about all students. Some are, are, are not this way at all, but a lot of students are, and I don't know the right word to use here so that it doesn't come across as too strong an indictment, but can be led down the garden path, can buy something wholesale that probably ought to be considered with more of a filter. And that's true of all of us. That's true of all of us. All the way through adulthood, all of us fall prey to things like that. But obviously, the more life experience you get, the longer you live, the better you at least should become at being able to tell the difference and filter things out. And I wish I wish we all applied those filters better. Not just college students, all of us. I wish we all did. But there's a fair reason for us to sort of assume that a 18, an 18 or 19-year-old student who's just hearing about something may not have all of those filters fully developed or know which way to advocate for something in the best way. So again, hallelujah that they're at least willing to stand up and do something about it and that they want to learn these things. And the the college students I know are willing to learn. That's one of the great things about them. At the same time, it creates a, a really ideal pot for observing this boiling situation come to a head. And that's what's happened, not only at Harvard, but at college campuses around the country when it comes to this conflict between Israel and Hamas, and then the consequences that's having on the people in Gaza. I'm not planning on having a conversation for two episodes, certainly, about Gaza and uh, Hamas and Israel. Uh, That's not what this show is about. It's about what the Chronicle of Higher Education brought up, that that conflict has raised as an issue on these campuses, which is a a conflict between free speech on the one hand, you know, we have a right to protest on behalf of even Hamas, which some college students are advocating. And I think this is extremely unfortunate. And this is where I would say you ought to put on a better filter and describe things in a better way. But they're even advocating for Hamas, not on our campus. I'm not talking about here at Criswell College, I'm talking about around the country on different campuses, and you've heard of this on different campuses, because they feel like the voice of citizens in Gaza, the voices of people in Gaza are not being heard, and so they want to speak on their behalf, and they end up going all the way across and speaking on behalf of Hamas, as if you would want to speak on behalf of a terrorist organization, an organization that just carried out a huge terrorist strike, which is, you know, not a great thing, but that's happening on one hand, and on the other hand, are Jewish groups who are saying, what on earth is happening here? I We we were hoping that we had developed a better sense of anti-Semitism and how to respond to it since the Holocaust, that we wouldn't be agitating against people simply because they're Jewish. And that's happening in our culture as well. So those two conflicts have brought to a head this decision-making process among administrators on on college campuses about who is to be protected in this case. I mean, do you take the student who's wanting to advocate and they're learning in the process and figuring out how to be a good citizen and all that kind of stuff and how do we stand up for the rights of others and they're doing all of that and speaking in a way that might produce danger or harm for another group of students? 
who are just saying, look, we just want to live in a safe environment on the campus and not have hate speech inflaming potential acts of violence against our population. And so what you end up with is this contest of free speech on the one hand, protecting free speech, and then vulnerable groups on the other hand, protecting groups of people who, because of their identity, are sometimes more vulnerable, not only to, uh, you know, harassment of some kind, but literally to the dangers that come because human beings are not the best at drawing a line between personal insults and incitement of anger and then acts of violence. We're just not. And all you have to do is be around a mob for a few minutes to realize how out of hand it can get in a hurry. And so so I wanted to sort of clarify the issue by reading a little more from this daily briefing in the Chronicle. And, you know, we will link to it. Uh, We'll link to that Chronicle daily briefing. But I don't even know if you'll be able to access it. It's a, you know, it's a subscription service. But I think the daily briefing you might be able to get to. So uh, we'll link to it so that you can read it yourself. But I, I wanted to convey the information here. So to understand the issue, let me let me go a little further into that article. And uh, this, is, this is where Evan Goldstein goes a little further and says this. According to Jeff Schulenberger, and this is a, a, another author, another person who writes about these things. According to Jeff Schulenberger, we're witnessing the end of an era in campus speech that began with Charles Murray's melee-provoking visit to Middlebury College in 2017. Since then, in incident after incident, advocates of free speech, and you're surely you've heard about these incidents and the conflict of free speech on campuses, where some uh, normally very conservative uh, sort of uh, rhetorically inflammatory speaker is invited to a campus, and he's going to speak, and he's considered a racist, and but we're going to let him speak because we advocate for free speech. And then you have students who protest against it or throw things at the speaker or do things that endanger the safety of the campus, and sometimes the speaker is disinvited or the uh, event is shut down, and surely you've heard about some of these conflicts going on on campuses right now. That's what this is talking about. So since then, in incident, I'm quoting again, in incident after incident, advocates of free speech have faced off against those alleging the speech in question would harm vulnerable groups. Schulenberger writes, and colleges have tended to come down on the side of protecting vulnerable groups. So sometimes the free speech is sacrificed on behalf of the group that's being threatened because of the sort of inciting language that's being used in the free speech. Okay, so continuing the quotation. That approach was held together by a largely unspoken assumption that it's always possible, even easy, to determine who needs protection, who's the oppressed, and who's the oppressor. But that assumption crumbled on October 7th in reference to the Hamas attack on Israel. Who's in power and who's not in power when you have two different vulnerable groups who are saying, you need to take up our cause You need to defend our interest. So I'm going on in that article. The post-October 7th reckoning on campuses has lent fresh urgency to highly contested questions. To what extent have colleges, often with the best of intentions, created an expectation of institutional affirmation? And man, if you're an administration in a college, you know what this means. You know that it's not enough to allow someone on campus to say something 
You want it that students want the administration to say something. You speak out on this issue as well. And sometimes they're right for demanding that. Sometimes silence is complicity. I'm not even opposed to that idea. So back to the quotation. So it says this post-October 7th reckoning on campuses has led to this, you know, confrontation about these questions. To what extent have colleges, here's the question, often with the best of intentions, created an expectation of institutional affirmation, especially among students and alumni? Should colleges be in the business of validating viewpoints, offering up institutional imprimaturs as a kind of good housekeeping seal of the just and good? Or is that a recipe for disappointment and disillusionment? By the way, I'm going to pause and insert myself here and say, and this author knows it, the, this uh, Chronicle of Higher Education, the person who put this together knows this. It's part of what they're implying in the paragraph there's no easy way to answer that question and simply say, oh, yeah, well, we should just extract ourselves from making public statements about moral issues. Seriously? We're not going to talk about any of the injustices that take place in our society at all? We're not going to talk about democratic values, what we care about as a democratic society? Why, for this reason, we ought to be promoting democratic liberties. Oh, you can't say that in a classroom because you're picking a side. Of course we're going to say those things. Drawing the line between what we think is worth political or moral speech on behalf of the university and what we think is something that, oh, well, those individuals, just let them hash it out. You know, we'll let them decide who's going to be an authority. That's not an easy thing to do at all. So another part of the background, and this is from that same article, and then I'll be done with the article and we'll move on. He says, elsewhere in this issue, my colleague Lynn Gutkin, a senior editor at the Chronicle Review and author of blah, 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 revisits a previous high-water mark of campus militancy, the 1960s. Mm. See, now, I, I, I mean, I was just a baby during the 1960s. I was zero to seven years old during the 1960s. I wasn't paying attention to any of that stuff, but I knew about it all from the 1970s because when I went through school, looking back only 10 years, there were all of the critical things, the confrontation at Kent State and so on. So, you know, this resonates with me. So he goes on to say, the high watermark of campus militancy, the 1960s, to examine the promises and pathologies of today's campus activism. And it's the differences between then and now that are most striking for one thing, and, and he just picks out this one for this briefing, this daily briefing. For one thing, the 1960s saw much more violence. Another crucial distinction, he says, is, okay, there are two. In the 1960s, Lynn notes, student activists did not seek the approval of college administrators. They just sought freedom from them. Nowadays, students crave institutional affirmation. And that is different. I mean, I knew the hippies that came out of the 60s, and I knew the things that they were looking for, and they didn't give a rip what the man thought about this issue or that issue. They just assumed they were against the man. That was the whole nature of the confrontation. That is different. It is common for students to sit in an administrator's office and say, you need to make a statement about this. You need to take action about this. And that's the assumption about college leadership and campuses, that not to speak out on certain issues is to become complicit on those issues. So what I, what I want to do is put an issue like this in the context of our discussion about, for instance, being peacemakers. 
it's much broader than the idea of peacemaking. It's not just about us being peacemakers, but it is in the context of us talking about being peacemakers. For instance, one of the very first episodes we did in this entire podcast series was about nuance and how important it is that we learn to use, it was defining terms, terms of peace, I think was the name of the episode, and being willing to use nuance when we define our terms. So if I put it in that context, then one of the first things we have to do is sort of balance the sense of desire we have to say as peacemakers, well, we need to understand both sides with the emptiness, the void that's present if all we create is moral equivocation, if we never say this is right and that's wrong because that doesn't bring good things. That doesn't bring a good result. I was going to say the word righteousness. It just sounds so churchy to people, but I mean that. It doesn't bring justice to pretend like everybody's right. Everyone thinks they're right, but some people are not only wrong, they're evil. Evil does come into the world, and you could see it on October 7th. It's not hard to find it. So we don't need to become moral equivocators in order to be capable of still understanding both sides. So for example, it is not nuance to create some kind of equivocation, moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas. That's not nuance. That's an acknowledgement that somehow or another terrorism is legitimate. Terrorism's not legitimate. And if you if you just look at the background of terrorism and what motivates it and how it brings about the results that it desires, obviously we can talk about the results it desires separately, but the methods that are used are inherently evil. The nature of them is to provoke terror by acts that are considered by everyone evil, which is why they provoke the terror that they do. They're willing to do anything. That's the whole idea. Well, we better talk to them then and figure out what's going on. Terrorism, by its nature and in its background, has evil built into it. Justifying evil is not nuance. Saying, well, you know, the Nazis in Germany, they were just responding to economic, economic blight, so it's not really their fault that they did what they did. That's not nuance. That's foolishness. That's moral vapidness. There is an emptiness there that's unacceptable. At the same time, there is a nuance to be had. Understanding and even explaining why terrorism emerges is not the same thing as justifying or excusing terrorism's emergence. You understand? Understanding and explaining is not the same thing as excusing it or saying that it's right. Well, it emerged because of this or that. Therefore, we should just pat them on the back and say, I'm so sorry for what's, what you've been going through. And that's not the same thing. That's what we mean by nuance. Understand the difference between the two things. So we can understand why there would be an Irish Catholic sense in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, of political exclusion and why that would lead to the establishment of the IRA and Sinn Féin. Without, we can acknowledge all of that and not accept 
1974 declaration by the IRA that we achieve more in wartime than in peacetime, and therefore we're going back to the bombings and all of the, the, the troubles, uh, as it was known in England after that. So uh, there is a difference between those two things. Examining root causes for the emergence of evil. And what I mean by that is ultimately psychological root causes. So if we look at it psychologically and we say, why did an 18-year-old Palestinian become someone willing to wield a knife in a setting where he knows he's going to be shot dead before the end of the event? Why on earth is he willing to do that? Examining root causes for the emergence of an evil act is worthwhile. It, but it also requires nuance because saying it happened because he saw no hope in his future. Whether, whether that was justified or not, whether there really was no hope or not, different question. But that he saw no hope is a largely justifiable claim in that one particular example I'm giving. And even in the case of Hamas's power in Israel, and I'm not saying, or, or in the Palestinian territories in Israel, and I'm not saying that simple. I'm not saying that since 2004, Hamas has been entirely this or entirely that, but they have led to this event after all of those years of rule, after nearly 20 years of authority in Israel. This is the product that came from it. So you can understand why it's there, but you can also look back on it and go, why did they feel so desperate? Why did they have that sense? Understanding it is not the same thing as justifying it or saying, oh, well, then I guess their action was just okay. We don't need to do that. We don't need to take that other step. It's the same thing as saying this. The Nazi Germans were playing off of legitimate economic pressures in Europe at that time. There really were, there really was a crisis going on. But then they used that pressure to do things that don't deserve any kind of justification at all, to blame and alienate an enemy. In reality, they just chose a different demographic and alienated and blamed that demographic. Then to foment the mob hostility against that demographic and say, we can do something about this. We just need to get rid of all of those people who are using us, those people who are taking our money, those people who are taking our jobs and so on. The Nazi Germans were playing off of legitimate economic pressures, and they were morally wrong for abusing the people's response to those pressures. Familiar, and by the way, here, right now, familiarity with history invites us to recognize when the first steps down a path put us at risk of arriving at its morally culpable destination, right? So I'm not bringing up Nazi Germany by chance here. Am I saying we're living in a Nazi enterprise? No. Am I picking one of our political parties and saying, well, they might as well be Nazis? No, I'm not. Am I saying, or they might as well be Stalinists? No, I'm not. I'm not picking that at all. But I am saying when we start going down the same path that those groups were going down, we can recognize it before we get to the end of the path and say, man, maybe we ought to do something different here, something dangerous is happening. So when we are alienating and blaming immigrants or people of color or the opposite political party, when we're doing all of that, when we're padding our rhetoric with 
apocalyptic language to justify the need for more radical reactions to threats. I mean, people use language like, well, we're living in a post-constitutional culture anyway. When we're using apocalyptic language like that in response to, you know, these radical threats to our freedoms and so on, fomenting a mob mentality, a mob's hostility toward other groups, toward whoever they are. Again, I can choose three that in our culture are being picked out for hostility. Immigrants, people of color, and the opposite political party, whichever side of the political party you're on. When you're doing that and say, well, we're just going to perish if those people have power, then you create this sense. We set the stage for potential acts of violence, not just against those who, for instance, choosing the immigrant example, not just, we, we set the stage for potential acts of violence, not just against those who are smuggling drugs across the border. Of course we want to stop that, but also against families who are trying to escape the influence of the very same drug dealers within their home countries. I know people who live here now and have lived here for a couple of decades who came to the United States illegally. They crossed the border illegally. They came without documentation because their children were being recruited into the drug gangs that they had no power to resist in their home country. Even the police couldn't resist the drug gangs in their own country. And they said, our children are not going to be drug dealers. We're leaving our home and we're moving somewhere else. And they came to America. And because of DACA, they've ended up having citizenship and being great contributors to our country. That's why they're here. When we choose to alienate whole groups of people and say, oh, it's an apocalypse, our entire country is going to fall into a demise, we run the risk of taking the next step. And some people have taken this step. I mean, you can't argue with that. But we run the risk of a lot of us taking the next step and starting to take acts against or raise our rhetoric against other people who are just like us, who are just trying to escape all of that hostility and conflict and who are potentially even more vulnerable than we are because of the way they're outside the mainstream of power in our society, in our setting. We'll talk more about that in just a second. I'll give you an example, though. I, I, and, and by example, in this case, I don't mean let's just pick a story and tell it. I mean, let's pick a part of our society and just use it as an illustration of how easy it is for us to go down the wrong road to how we respond when we're trying to answer a question as easy, what we would think is as easy as saying, how do we defend, defend people's free speech? Okay, well, on a, on a college campus, we know, because we deal with this all the time, we know it's not as easy as just saying, well, anybody can say anything they want. I mean, this is a free speech zone because our campus is an advocate of free speech. Because when people start getting up and using their rhetoric to attack vulnerable people groups, to say, we ought to run all those people out of this country to begin with, we shouldn't even have these students on our campus, then you are not, if you're not aware of how much of a threat that creates for a student who's in one of those people groups, then first of all, you need to take a good look at your empathetic, uh, you know, uh, response and make sure it's still functioning. Secondly, you may just not be around people groups that are vulnerable. You may just not be exposed to the reality of the threat or the danger 
that becomes realized in their day-to-day existence, not knowing when you can go out or when you can't, when you can wear your native clothing or when you can't, and so on. So you get the idea. So let's put it in the context of you know, law enforcement, particularly police forces for a moment. So on, on the one side, and this is uh, the language we use for this is just rule of law, right? We need the rule of law. We need equal protection under the law. It's inherently valuable. I mean, you can't have a society without some kind of rule of law, something to keep the peace in that society. I'll explain more about why that is in just a minute. But under the rule of law, where there's this assumption that there's equal protection under the law, there's a way for us to understand it that just says this is this should be universally the case. It's not. There are societies where this is not the case, where the rule of law doesn't mean equal protection under the law, but we think there's something wrong in those societies, not just because we're democratic or American or something like that, but built into the moral way we have of understanding the world as believers, as those who follow scripture at all, even in Judaism or in Christianity, New Testament, Old Testament, the idea is conveyed the same way. I always use Leviticus 19 to point this out. I've done it a I have no idea how many times in this podcast. But for instance, and this I think is the central statement about it, in Leviticus 19 verse 15, the language is this. You will not do injustice in court. Do not practice some kind of unrighteousness, inequality, injustice in court. You shall, and this is how he says to do that, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. That statement that points both directions, both to the vulnerable and to the powerful, and says to the person who's practicing judgment, you can't be biased either way. You need to execute the law with justice towards all. So everyone has the law at their disposal as this protection and as this means of uh, finding uh, equality or fairness in the way we're being dealt with in our society. So that's verse 15. You know what the two verses right before that emphasize, though? This, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. This is speaking to the person who has the, the, the field, they have the ownership, they have the money, and they hire someone who doesn't have the field, doesn't have the power, doesn't have the ownership. And it's saying you have the ability to hang on to their money and make them work for you another day before they can get paid at all or to govern how much they're going to have to produce for you before you're willing to release their pay. But you can't do that. You can't use your power against someone who's vulnerable like that. You have to do the just thing and pay them at the end of the day. Give them the money that they've earned from you. You can't say, well, if you work one more day, I'll go ahead and pay you. No, you give them the money when, you've, when, you, when they have completed the work. So the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You say, ah, that's Old Testament code. Doesn't matter. That's what James is condemning people for in James 5 at the beginning of his book after the resurrection in the early church. Don't violate these principles of justice. And in the next verse in Leviticus 19 in verse 14, It says, and you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. His statements 
I am the Lord, you shall fear your God, are statements to remind them that he's the one who has all the power. And by the end of the chapter, he's saying to them, and when you are at your most vulnerable, when you were strangers in a strange land, in Egypt, enslaved, I took up your cause against those who had power against you. I didn't use my power, God says, to defend myself. I used my power to stop one powerful group from oppressing a vulnerable group. Built into the nature of the rule of law as it's understood in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that what we are supposed to do is provide equal protection under the law by first recognizing those whose equal protection is most often violated, those who are vulnerable. They don't have someone else taking up their cause, and they don't have the resources to defend themselves. So we have an obligation to use the power that belongs to us to protect them. That's built into it. Then, in addition to that, there's this reminder that you don't use that simply to raise the oppressed class into a position where they can oppress the oppressors, which is why in verse 15 he has to say, don't be partial to defer to the poor or to the great, but rather in righteousness judge your neighbor. That is, set a standard that's absolute and then use that as a way to advocate on behalf of those who need advocating for. And by the way, do you know who needs advocating for the most? Those who are vulnerable. That's the point of being vulnerable. So if you think of it in terms of the rule of law, you can hear where this conflict between free speech and vulnerable people groups comes to bear. Because in free speech, you are simply saying everyone has a right to speak their mind. Everyone should have the freedom to speak. And that's a benefit to society because if you don't have that, you end up having some doctrine imposed on everyone from on high, and we're not allowed to speak about areas where we have disagreement. This is why censorship actions over the last couple of years should be such a concern for us because we don't want to dictate the way people think by restricting the words they're allowed to hear. That's harmful to the equity that we want to give to people in a free society. So you can understand why free speech needs to apply to everyone everywhere all of the time. And at the same time, you realize why vulnerable groups, because they don't have the power built into their demographic, into their identity to defend themselves in every way that others have built into them, They do need the law to act on their behalf to raise their footing to where it can be equal with other groups. The nature of laws is that we protect the interest of the society that writes those laws. That's the nature of laws. I mean, that's why, and society has to have some stability. It's essential to the nature of what a society is. So how to have those laws enforced in a way that protects vulnerable groups but remembers that everybody in that society is supposed to be protected equally within those laws, that's the balance that's being challenged right now in the protests between those who are advocating for the people in Gaza and the people who are advocating against anti-Semitism right now. That's part of the contest there, and it's part of what we have to figure out as a society to address. More importantly, for this moment, for us, 
It's, we have to figure out as believers how we're supposed to address this issue. And obviously, I'm not going to finish the conversation today. I mean, we'll come back for one more episode and, and finish the conversation then. But where we want to arrive is recognizing that on one side, it's important that every single person be treated as someone worthy of hearing and understanding, even when what they're advocating for is wrong, even when they're arguing from their own strength and power. We have to remember that every single person is a person bearing the image of God, because we're believers, we can say it that way, that every single person has to be treated with the dignity of humanity, because if they're not, then no one's being treated with dignity simply because they're human. Everyone has the dignity of humanity, or no one has dignity because they're human. We have to recognize that on one side. And on the other side, remember that as believers, we always first have to ask how we are using our power, not for ourselves, but for the sake of those who do not have their own. More in the next episode. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.